We've been working for most of this year through 1 Corinthians, St. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Last week we looked at how Christians believe that God is present with us through his spirit and that that same spirit works in us to do Jesus' work in the world through us. So Christians believe that God is both present with us and that he is working through us to do Jesus' work in the world. Jesus' life, death and resurrection achieved lots for humanity and for the world in general. Jesus came to show us how to live. He is a picture of how we should live. That was partly what we were thinking about when we were looking at the psalm at the beginning of the service. This idea that descriptions are given in the Bible of what humanity should be like and the best description is the life of Jesus. He came to take the punishment for our sins. That's what we uh, believe the cross is doing in part, is that Jesus is suffering in our place. That if you like, sin is a disease that affects the whole of humanity and one day will have to be purged. And Jesus took that purging for us. He came to take the punishment for the wrong that we do to God and to each other. However, there is another dimension to Jesus' work, another thing that Jesus achieved on the cross, that is at least as important as these other two. Jesus' best friend John wrote that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's 1 John 3.8, if you take notes. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It was written by John at the end of his life. He'd spent his whole life, first few years of his adult life with Jesus, and the rest of it teaching people about how to live as Jesus' followers. And at the end of his life, probably in AD about 90, he wrote this letter to a church and he was writing down the things he felt they should know, above all else. The most important thing you should know about Jesus, John says, is that the reason he came was to destroy the devil's work. The Son of God came as a one-man army invading the devil's territory in order to destroy what he does. Jesus explains a bit more what this means in a famous sermon recorded in Luke 4, 18-19. He took up uh, the uh, book of Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, who spoke about one day God would come as a man, and he would put right that which was wrong. He would undo evil. And Isaiah described it in this way. And Jesus stood up and said, These are, This is a description that applies to me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And it says in Luke that Jesus sat down, after he'd finished reading, he said, all of this is fulfilled in your hearing, in me. I am the one who comes to set free the captives. It's interesting, isn't it, as we come up to Christmas, to think about Jesus in that way. At Christmas, we often think about Jesus as a gentle baby, and here he is saying, I am more like James Bond. 
Less gentle baby, more James Bond. Jesus came to do spiritual warfare against the devil in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what his life was directed towards. It's what he counselled people. It's why he counselled people. Because he wanted to break them free of mental and physical distress. It's why he spoke prophetically into their lives. Why he said, actually, this is what God says to you. Because he wanted to set them free from fear and bring them to repentance. It's why he healed people in miraculous ways. It's why he taught people to pray and explain what God wants for them. Ultimately, it is why Jesus died and rose again. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he is destroying sin and death and the devil and calling us to follow him. This is an exciting and challenging view of Jesus. I find it extremely exciting. Because there is still evil in the world. There are still people in chains. There are people in physical chains. There are people in emotional chains. There are people physically ill. There are hungry people. There are people who are poor and need money. There are people, many people, who are in need of good news. The devil is still at work in the world. And so Jesus still needs to be at work in the world. He actually said, I am going to still be at work in the world. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and they will do even greater than these because I'm going to the Father. That's you and I, church. If you are somebody who follows Jesus, who believes in him, Jesus says of you and of me, you will do greater works than I did. In a sense, he's saying, I destroyed a certain number of forts. But after I'm gone, you're going to destroy a hundred times more. I set a certain number of people free, you will set more free. I proclaim the good news to a certain number of people, you will proclaim it to more. And why? Because I'm going to the Father. It's John 14, 12, again if you're taking notes. When Jesus went to the Father, he sent the Spirit. And that's what we're going to think about now. We always try and give a, a, a one or two sentence summary of what the talk is about. Call it our lunchtime summary. Our lunchtime summary for today is that we are called to carry on Jesus' work in the world. The Spirit of God wants to use each one of us in different ways, natural and supernatural, to fight for good and for light and for life. And he asks us, will we work with him? The Spirit of God wants to use each one of us in different ways, both natural and supernatural, to fight for good, for light, and for life. So will we work with him? The Spirit of God wants to use each one of us in different ways. Natural and supernatural, to fight for good and for light and for life. So will we work with him? With that said, we're going to read now from the Bible. This is a passage we were looking at last week. We're going to start to look at it in a bit more detail. It's a passage where St. Paul, writing to a church... Uh, I have no idea why it's cutting some of the words off, but there we go. Writing to one of the very earliest churches, writes 
this description of some of the ways that God is at work in us to do the work of Jesus. Reading from 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 4 to 11. Find it. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, at the church, I think it's on page 1153. And in the second column, at the top of the second column. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one, just as He determines. I'm trying to use more images in my sermons because uh, I understand some people find images easier to remember than words. So here's one. There you go. I rather like him. Is that me? My moustache is not quite as luxurious as that. I wish it was. It's what I aspire to be. Actually, I stayed in Germany this year with a lovely family, and the father in the family was called Wolfgang, and he literally had a moustache like that. I'm not exaggerating. If anything, Wolfgang's moustache was a little bit wider on his head. Unbelievably luxurious. I was very jealous. The reason I put that picture on the screen is because we're called to be an army. Again, this is a picture of the church that's gone out of fashion a little bit. It was in fashion very much at the end of the 19th century. You even had the Salvation Army set up along these lines. It's a picture that's helpful, I think, because it shows a force with a mission. The church is not a club for people who like spiritual things. It's not a spiritual fun club or a club... For those with a common interest, we are not the singing equivalent of model railway builders, fun though they might be. We are a people gathered together by the grace of God to know God and then do the work of Jesus. The most important question for any army is who is the general? That's the single most important question for any army. Who is the general? Who is the person in charge? Who's the one who gives the orders? Who's the one who animates the army, who directs its operations and gives orders to individual soldiers? That is the most significant person in any army because he determines or she determines what role everyone else has. If the general says to you, you are going to take that hill, you go and do it. If the general says to you, you are not going out today, you are going to man the radio, you do it. Because they're the one who can see everything. They determine what role everyone plays. Actually, in sports, this person is the coach or the captain of the team. If you follow football, as I do, uh, you will see what happens regularly when this chain of command breaks down. 
Uh, Man United are going through something of this at the moment. You won't have, escaped the, won't have escaped your attention if you watch the news or read the newspapers. The biggest club in the world has been operating as if it doesn't have a general. The players do what they like. And unsurprisingly, when you don't have a general, when you don't have a manager, you lose. The team becomes less effective. Paul explains that the general for the Christian army is God in the person of the Holy Spirit. Our general is the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, he says, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in every one, it is the same God at work. The one who determines each of our roles in God's army is God. He decides how to use us and where we are deployed. He is the one who comes with us to make us able to fight sin and darkness and evil. This has big implications as we shall see. It means that there should be no hierarchy between us. I am not the general, and nor are you. The person who has been in this church for 50 years is not the general, and nor is the person who joined yesterday. The Holy Spirit is the one who determines what we do. There is no hierarchy. You have as much right to speak into my life as I have to speak into yours. God may have determined that one of us should train troops. That's really my job. My job is to be a trainer of troops. I am the guy who sits at Sandown, or Sandringham, I forget which one it is. Sandhurst, thank you, there we go. Sandcastles, I sit in Sandcastles, and I teach people how to be soldiers. You're the soldiers. I'm the unpleasant field marshal back at base, who tells you to get up in the morning. Some of us train troops. Others feed troops. Others go and take a hill. Others drop from the skies. We don't choose. The general chooses. And he's got a plan for every single member of this church. Every single person in this room, the general has a role for you in the army. As Paul says, all these, all of these weapons are the work of one and the same spirit and he distributes each one just as he determines. What then are the weapons for this fight? The spirit is present with us and he arms us to fight against the devil and his works. To fight against sin, against selfishness, against greed and sickness, against hatred and bitterness. The Spirit has the weapons we need to do the work of Jesus. And Paul gives examples of these in verses 7 to 10. This isn't an exhaustive list. He's not writing a manual. There are different lists appear in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament. But this is an example of the ways the Holy Spirit works in the church to fight against evil and darkness and sin. He says, now to each one, of, each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. Uh, 
to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. These are examples of the ways in which we are empowered by God's Spirit to build up those who are walking in the light and to tear down the work of darkness. We're going to go through some of these in more detail in the weeks ahead. For now though, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things we might miss. First of all, we need them all. No one person has all of these gifts. No one person is a super soldier. Jesus did. He's Rambo. We are not. No one person has all of these gifts. But as a community, as an army... We need them all if we are to do Jesus' work. We need those who are wise. We need people who understand situations and know how to apply the Bible and common sense to make good decisions. And that can be as small as needing people who know what to do when somebody wants to get married and they're getting married to someone totally unsuitable for them. All the way up to people in the church who can see prophetically what is wrong with a situation that no one else can see. An example of this actually is William Wilberforce. He didn't put it in this term, but I would say Wilberforce had a spiritual gift of wisdom and knowledge. He was able to see what no one else or what very few other people could see in England at the time, which was that slavery was both wicked and counter to the word of God. A culture had built up, they'd abandoned, they moved away from the the historic Christian position, and a culture built up that becomes self-justifying, where uh, people were no longer able to even see the problem. They couldn't see the pollution, if if I put it that way. The air was filled with smog, and they thought it was mist. And Wilberforce had the wisdom, the prophetic insight from God, I believe, to see, no, this isn't mist, it is pollution and it is killing us and it is wrong. And he, along with others, could organise together and show from the word of God why this was wrong and then knew how to organise to defeat it. There was wisdom in it. It's actually interesting, if you follow through how the slave trade was abolished, it wasn't abolished in the first place through a big uh, kind of uh, grandstanding act. There eventually was an abolition of the Slave Trade Act, but the slave trade had almost completely dried up because of a change in taxation laws that Wilberforce and his friends came up with after years of being defeated on the big acts. If you want to watch the film Amazing Grace, they go through this, it's very interesting. In the end, they conned Parliament into abolishing the slave trade in effect, and then when it was no longer happening, they were happy to abolish it in law as well. Real wisdom, a spiritual gift of wisdom, it's practical, is what I'm trying to show you. Can you see why we need it? Now that's a big thing, that's a historic thing. Probably the single greatest social achievement in British history. Brought about by evangelical Christians. But we need wisdom in our everyday lives. Later at the church lunch, we're going to be talking about what we do about the church building, about our lease, 
What more do we need in those circumstances than somebody whom God is using and making wise to talk to us about how we should behave? What we should do? We need people of faith. Paul says there's a spiritual gift of faith. You can hear that and you can think of people sitting there with their legs folded, you know, like uh, Abby's ballet class. Their hands out like this. I'm going to do it because I'll fall over. They're going, oh, they go, oh, he's got a gift of faith. He's so good at faith. Look, he wears long flowing clothes. He dresses only in black. Om. Om. And then they say something mystical. That's not what Paul means at all. What he means is those who are risk takers. The church needs entrepreneurs, if I could put it that way. It needs people who are willing to say, look, I know this sounds crazy, but let's go ahead and do it because God is big and we can do this and he can do it. And if we fail, we'll get back up and we'll try something else. Jesus' parables were full of this. Parable of the talents is about a guy who goes away and invests, speculates with money given to him by a king and he ends up making more. The guy who refuses to take any risk ends up getting condemned at the end of the parable. We need people of faith. People who who can see an opportunity and see that God is big enough to meet it and have the courage to do so. The church needs entrepreneurs. We We need to see people healed. We need to hear what God has to say about the specific situations we face. We need to be able to pray with more than just our minds. That's what the gift of tongues is about. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks' time. But as a sneak preview... You are not just a mind. You have a soul. You have a heart. You, you talk with your understanding. But sometimes you need to pray in a way that you don't even understand. We need people who are able to pray like that. Who can pray with their whole selves. Not everyone, but we need them in the church. We won't all do everything. That's why we're not on our own. But together we can harness these gifts to do God's work. The second point is that these gifts are both natural and supernatural. I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading through the list. Every single one of them, you could say, this has a natural dimension to it, and it has a supernatural dimension to it. Take, for example, gifts of healing. There is a gift of healing that is part of our natural birth, that each one of us is born with, if you like. The Spirit of God is at work creating and recreating the world at He was at work creating and recreating you when you were born. You knit me together, Psalm 139 says, in my mother's womb. When you were still inside your mum's tum, you were being knit together by the Holy Spirit. He was at work in you. And there is a gift of healing that each one of us has naturally. It's when you see someone with a flannel, with a fever in your family, and you put a cold flannel on their head. You have the perception that you know that's what this person needs to get better, to feel better. It's giving cowpole to a child. Right, it's picking up somebody who's broken their leg and carrying them to a chair so they're not still standing on it. It goes all the way up to getting trained to be a doctor and uh, healing people who are very sick. You might say to me, Phil, that isn't a spiritual gift. I would say to you, then why don't foxes do it? <laughs> Sounds like I'm being stupid, doesn't it? Why are we the only people who do that? Like dolphins don't make... There aren't dolphin hospitals underground, under the sea where they're tending the little dolphin sick. The Spirit of God is at work in humanity in a unique way, making us able to do these things. 
Right? There is a natural gift of healing. There's a natural gift of prophecy, actually. Right? People who read the Bible and can think about it and can look at the world and say, actually, this is what God thinks about this. It's a natural gift. But there's also a supernatural gift. For reasons that I'll explain in another time. I don't like the language of natural and supernatural. But that's what we have at the moment, anyway. There is a supernatural gift. Paul and Jesus and others clearly heal people in a way that doesn't involve the normal medical processes. Right? They pray for somebody. They tell them to stand up. There are times where the treatment by, where without treatment by human beings, God intervenes. So God's normal mode is to work through human beings. In Genesis 1, he says to Adam and Eve, go into the world and subdue it and fill it. I want you to go and do the work. Don't look at me, I'm not going to do it all for you. It's like a father saying to his son, I want you to go and tidy your room. And the son says to me, you can see this is personal, the son says to his father, that was a Freudian slip, yeah, can you do it for me, Dad? I'm like, no. I want you to go and learn to tidy your own room. God says to Adam and Eve, I've given you this room, there's the world. I want you to learn to go and tidy it. I could do it for you, but then where would you be? Slumped on the sofa playing computer games in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> go into the world and subdue it, right? That's how God works. He expects us to work with him, right? But there are times where God intervenes. As if to show you, he doesn't actually need us. He doesn't actually need us to heal people. He can do it himself. He chooses to use us to heal people. We shouldn't be surprised. This pattern of natural and supernatural going together shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, Unless a man or a woman is born of water and of the Spirit, born naturally and supernaturally, they can't enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, you guys, you only see half the picture. You need both. Both are intended to be a part of human experience. Both are needed for the church's mission. We need to work at the gifts the Spirit gave us when we were born. Did God make you able to do computer programming? Then work at it. You don't just shake your head, Pat. I'm not looking at you particularly. I had an intuition about that. I don't think it's prophetic. Computer program for the glory of God. Help other people who need help. Did he make you able to fix cars and fix stuff? Do it to the glory of God. Find people who need stuff fixing and fix it for them. Did he make you able to heal people? Go and get trained as a doctor and heal people. Work at it. But we also need to pursue the gifts he gives us when we are born spiritually. Don't sit only dealing with the natural gifts you have. Pursue God for supernatural gifts. Say to him, actually, I, I know that I heal my child when I put cowpaw in his mouth and her fever breaks and she's, it's wonderful, but I want to be praying for people when they get better too. Go and ask God. Work at that as well. But to put it crudely, we need every weapon, whether natural or supernatural, if we are to fight the devil. Otherwise, we are at risk of uh, being like the uh, 
I forget what he's called. Sean Connery's character in the movie The Untouchables uh, is a great, it's a really wonderful, it's a really wonderful movie. Uh, it's fantastic. It's all about uh, the bringing down of Al Capone by Elliot Ness. It's very good. Don't watch it if you're squeamish, but it's very good. And uh, he, uh, one, of the, one guy breaks into Sean Connery's house and he turns around and he goes, oh, isn't that just like you? I can't do the voice. You brought a knife to a gunfight. He's got, he's got his big 1920s Tommy gun ready. And uh, you think, if we don't pursue all these spiritual gifts, if we stick with just being supernaturalists, or just being naturalists, then, not naturists, that's completely different, naturalists, then we're at risk of bringing a knife to a gunfight. But the devil isn't bringing a knife, he's brought a gun. And he wants to use you to fight. God wants to use you to fight him. And me. How then do we fight? It takes faith, courage and teamwork. We fight by seeking natural and supernatural gifts of the Spirit and using them for the good of the church and the community we live in. Practically, what does this mean? Well, let me change my analogy slightly to explain. I've been waiting to bring this out in church for a while, so I'm going to do it now. Okay, there we go. I honestly tried to think whether it was legitimate for me to play Chaz and Dave as we came into church this morning, but decided it probably wasn't okay. Heather wouldn't be comfortable. I don't want to do that. This is Harry Kane. It's actually him playing against Cardiff yesterday. I was there with the boys. I went to see the mighty Spurs at Wembley. The teams were diverse. You don't have to be a Spurs fan, by the way, to be in the kingdom of God. God's grace is enough to cover you. Not by our own righteousness. Although we do have a deliverance ministry for Arsenal fans. Yesterday I went to see the mighty Spurs at Wembley. The teams were diverse. There were midfielders, there were defenders, there were goalkeepers, there were strikers, there were people changing position, there were left footers, there were right footers, there were giants, there were speedsters. There was a guy who looks unnervingly like Joe Jethro's husband, uh, Tedge. Yet in the midst of all this diversity, every player on the pitch had at least one thing in common. They had decided to get into the game. Whether they were playing for Spurs or for Cardiff, whether they were playing in goal or as strikers, they decided to get on the pitch and start playing. A lot of us find it easier to sit on the sidelines and watch. And let me tell you, it was. Harry Kane there looks as if he's been charging around in the pouring rain for 90 minutes, trying his heart out. Uh, trying his heart out. And he had. Let me tell you, at this moment in the game, I was sat on my chair, eating chips with Ben and Sam, explaining to them why Harry Kane was running in the way he was. It was a lot easier to be me. A lot of us find it easier to sit on the sidelines and watch. It is easier. Ben and Sam and I had an easier 90 minutes than the players we watched. But we also had no impact on the game whatsoever. I like to think me chanting off, off, off at the moment when the Cardiff player brought down Lucas Mora influenced the referee. The truth is it probably didn't. We did not contribute anything to the team save them knowing that we were there. Church, we can do the same thing with the spiritual battle going on around us. It is possible to sit in church every week and spectate 
the fight. But it isn't a game. It's our lives we are spectators in. It isn't a sport. It is the future of our families, our communities, our church and our friends. To watch is easy. You don't need to risk anything. There are no columns this morning explaining how badly I played yesterday. Right? If you're Neil Warnock, the Cardiff manager, there are plenty of columns in the newspapers this morning explaining how your team is going to be relegated because you aren't very good at your job. There are no columns in the newspaper saying how bad I was at supporting the team yesterday. I risked nothing. But conversely, I will never achieve anything for Spurs. We become spiritual spectators who never succeed in the Christian life because we never risk failure. It takes courage to pray with someone who is hurt. It requires self-discipline to cultivate a gift of knowledge. If you are a bright and able person, you are able to understand the scriptures and Christian tradition and to help other people who cannot. But you will not cultivate that gift and the Spirit will not help you to do so if you will not get into the Bible. It takes self-discipline. Again, yesterday morning, I lay in bed for a while... I got up, I played with my daughter, I made a loaf, having gone to Waitrose. It was a really relaxed morning. And then I drove to Wembley Stadium, sat and ate chips and watched the football. Harry Kane was up every morning running, training, working. That's why he is achieving something as a footballer and I am not. And if that sounds challenging, it's intended to be. We can see it with athletes... The spiritual life is no different. Once we have decided, it requires faith to share what we believe God is saying to someone and offer to help them. I think lots of us, God actually speaks to prophetically. I think that happens a lot. I think what doesn't happen a lot is that we have the courage to share what we think he's saying. To go up to someone and say, look, I just, I don't know if this is right, but I sense that you're really struggling at the moment. If you are, I think God's wanting to say to you that he loves you takes courage. You're vulnerable. They might turn around and say, oh no, it wasn't that. I had this experience last week. Liz, do you mind if I share this about your finger? I had this experience last week. I made myself vulnerable and nothing happened. I stood up at the front. I said, I really think uh, God wants to heal somebody with a a hurt hand. And uh, I waited at the end of the service. No one came and prayed with me. I thought, well, I obviously just got that wrong. Went to Life Group on Tuesday, Liz and Thea were there at our house, and uh, Liz says to me, you know, I did have a hurt hand, but I didn't think it could possibly be me you were talking to. You know, there's that moment on Sunday where I, I thought, oh, I've obviously just got that wrong. I made myself vulnerable, and I've obviously just got it wrong. You know, it's risky. As it happened, the Lord knew. And the Lord cares as much about Liz's burnt finger as he does about somebody whose hand's been cut off. You know, none of us are too insignificant. But it is vulnerable to have faith to share what you think God's saying with somebody. What can we do about it? When you're working out what to do this week, this is the overall point. It doesn't matter where you play, but do get in the game. Once we've decided to get in the game, we need to begin to find out what our natural gifts are. And what supernatural ways the Spirit's wanting to use us. It's not an exact science. It takes time to find out where on the pitch you are best suited to play. 
But here's how you can make a start. Take five minutes out each day. Each one of us can afford five minutes. Okay, I promise you. You might sit there thinking, I haven't got five minutes to spare. I guarantee you have. Okay? If you really think you haven't got five minutes to spare, sit down with me, we'll work through your day and I'll find it for you. Take five minutes, not longer, follow this process. Pray a simple prayer asking you God, asking God how to show you how he wants to use you. Doesn't need to be fancy. Father God, thank you you want to use me. Please would you show me how. There you go, I've just done it for you. If you want to write down, I'll say it again. Father God, thank you that you want to use me. Please would you show me how. And mean it. Then think back over the past day or days. What excited you and made you want to do more? What excited you? What really got you going and made you want to do more? What terrified you and made you want to run a mile? Then ask God to use you in some way. After that, start to take part. When you see someone hurt or upset, ask if you can pray for them. If you find your passion is knowledge, if you think, oh, my heart really sang when I was reading my Bible this morning, read it in the evening as well. Start to do something about it. Come and ask me what book you should read next. Begin to study. Come to life groups and contribute. If you sense God is wanting to share a message with through you, text me or Heather. We'll pray about it and then we'll work with you to see if you can share it on a Sunday. If you, if you love to pray, ask him to make you able to pray with your spirit as well as with your mind. My friends, we're in a great battle. But our general is in control. And he wants to give us the weapons we need to fight for good. The Spirit of God wants to use each one of us in different ways, natural and supernatural, to fight for good and for light and for life. Will we work with him? Let's just be quiet.